artists just love, they just love to be on chess. We got their records played. Money Waters didn't make millions of dollars from royalties. He was able to make $500 on a Saturday night, which was like 5,000 back then, because his record was on the radio all week, because my father paid off Al Benson, you know, the blasted. to the races well thanks so much for doing this this is such a treat yeah. to get to talk to you my son you know i don't do much anymore man i'm od you know for i i ran the publishing for 20 something years and with all the chess songs and i knew my partners were all 90 80 they were all old i inherited my mother's shares yeah there were three other partners all uh, one was dead one's 104 now my uncle's dead he died at 97 so I spent years doing interviews, magazines worldwide. I have boxed hundreds of articles, maybe even a thousand, because I wanted to be able to get more money selling history as well as songs. And sure enough, Fuji, Japanese, bought it, and they wanted the history. I did the serious radio show for two years. Sure. I had the Chess Records Hour. All that was for that. But I liked doing it. So I got OD'd on it, you know, telling the story. <laughs> and I haven't really done much. And my son said, yeah, you got to do it. You got to do it. So thank uh, him. You, know, you got, he well, got me going I, again. I, I but, but I'm about to start again because I've been working on another blues project. It, it's called The Chess Project. And it's a blues album, another blues album with a lot of cult hip hop guys that are 50 and 60 that were hip hop musicians and uh it's got a little so I, it's going to be coming out and uh, and the best part is in that album by pure coincidence i was laying in bed listening to it there are three songs and i said this is the greatest it's called the virus blues ep the first song is tell me troubles knocking at my door the guy catching it and the second song is a famous willie dixon going down slow about dying Tell my friends, I've had more women. I've had a great life. And the third one is a famous Memphis Slim, Mother Earth. You die, you go back to Mother Earth. So uh, that's going to be coming out. Hopefully, I want to. They don't even know about it, BMG. But uh, I want to present that to them soon. Called the Virus Blues is part of this album release. So that's what I've been doing. So I'm going to get I'm getting ready. You're breaking me in again for publicity. All right. I'm well, still uh... I'm still a record man. I still like to discover it, promote it, the whole fucking thing. You know. That's fantastic. That's what I enjoy. There's no more record men. No more. You know, I did a, I did a hip-hop comic book with a famous consciousness rapper named KRS-One 30 years ago. And it was to get young black kids that couldn't read. It, it was a comic book with an audio track. You turn the page and we created a character named Big Joe Crash. And Marvel didn't know how to... It was an audio comic called Psychosonic, and they did not know how to market it in black neighborhoods, so it never did anything. But now Disney owns Marvel. There's all this black, big culture thing now. No one even knows. They don't. The music business now doesn't have a record, man. There are guys that run this department, that. There's no one saying, wow, that would work. And let's, it's, it's really interesting for me to look at it being so old and being through it. And all my contemporaries are basically dead now. You know, I'm going to be 80 eventually soon. All the early guys, I started very young. Right. My first road trip was 55, Fantastic. 1955. Fantastic. And where are you now? You're in New York State? <laughs> I live in upstate New York in the Catskill Mountains. Great. I bought this after the Rolling Stones. To, before I, And then I met a beautiful girl in Manhattan, and she convinced me to live my life here. She was a school teacher. 
she became a school teacher in the local school. And then I inherited that publishing company in Manhattan. I guess that was my, in 83. And then I worked for, for 20 something years. I, would, I, I did the opposite. I raised my family in the mountains, but I drove and stayed in the city on two days a week and stayed in the hotel, which in Manhattan is great. You leave your clothes in a closet. They, they take good care of you. You're a regular, you know? Sure. And I did that for, for years and then, then sold it. And now I'm living full time here. I've always loved the forest. It's, I need that. I'm a hyper uh, neurotic Jewish guy. And the forest has calmed me better than any drug. And if you'd walk with it, if you smoke a joint and go in the forest, it's even better, you know? You bet. So, you bet. So that's where I'm at. Yeah, that's where I live. And uh, But now I've made this album all through the internet with all people all over the world, between the UK, LA. The vocalist is a, I think he's one of the finest black vocalists alive today, never had a big hit. He's Bernard Fowler. He's the guy who's been singing with the Stones for sure, 15 years. Sure, sure, sure. He's absolutely. a partner on the project. He's the vocalist. So I directed him strictly by telephone and internet. And I said, I want to be in the room when you sing, but try to capture the young Howling Wolf, the young Muddy Waters, how they were when they made the hit. And he really got it. Like he really, the album's got a lot of electricity of youth in it. And he's a great vocalist. They're all great musicians. The drummer, the producer, Keith LeBlanc, he was the drummer of the, of the Sugar Hill hip hop label rhythm section. He basically invented, the, I worked there. That's the thing people don't realize. I'll tell you, I don't know, you might find it interesting, but I've had this amazing music ride. So here I am, I'm born in 1942. My dad had a black nightclub then called the Macombo Lounge. People came in to record live and he'd already started with a liquor store. He was an immigrant. The reason he had a liquor store in the ghetto was it was the cheapest rent and a black guy couldn't even rent a store in the ghetto, but the cheapest rent so he bought a storefront and he couldn't believe and a million black people came up from the South. This is pre-World War II factories, the steel mills. And so uh, he saw this amazing amount of weekend spending on alcohol. Wow, these people love to party. And he got to know black culture by being one of the few, you know, one of the white Jewish guys in the black ghetto. There were many, the hardware store, the, the coffee shop. They were all like, you know, white guys, no black guys owned businesses then. So... Then he started a corner, uh, a tavern with a jukebox. And then he saw, wow, they're putting, not only are they drinking, they're putting nickels in one after the other in the jukebox. And then he, then him, he, my uncle went in the army uh, and went to the Aleutian Islands. My dad started uh, the Macombo Lounge, which was, uh, had live music, ribs in the back, uh, long, narrow room. I personally was only in there once. I have this great story I'll tell I've told a hundred times that when I used to be on the road, my uh, dad took me, picked me up one night. He had a, he used to take turns, my dad and uncle. My uncle was be the bartender. They would be the bartenders. My dad took me there and it was in the evening, early evening one night when I was four or five. And uh, there was a gunshot as we walked in and he threw me over the board, over the bar to my uncle who was a, who got a scholarship to play football. My uncle pushed me down on these horrible boards that they have behind bars, you know, where the, the spilled rotten liquor smell. And he played on top of me. And the memory of that smell and his weight has stayed with me. I was a little, you know, that, that's a psychological thing. Stayed with me, with me, with me. And that was my only time in the Macomba Lounge. And uh, they used to take turns and that's how it started. Someone came into 
record live. And he said, wow, record business, black people are going to, you know, blah, blah, blah. This label was Aristocrat Records. They had mostly white artists, but believe it or not, they had Money Waters. You know the gypsy woman told me that you your mother's bad luck child. You know the gypsy woman told me that you your mother's bad luck child who was a truck driver and he had been recorded by Alan Lomax in the South. He's doing like historical music. He, they had Muddy Waters. My dad met Muddy Waters and that's how it all began, their relationship. And my dad worked, as, worked in the nightclub and then as a salesman for Aristocrat from 1947 to 1950. And in 1950, he bought, I think that's, I get the, the years right. He bought them out. The, company, the, the tavern burnt down. And that was the family story. Those fucking firemen, they weren't fighting the fire. They were passing out cases of whiskey one after the other before it burned up into the fire truck. You know, it burned down and uh, he started Chess Records, bought out the partners in Aristocrat. And with my uncle started Chess and, uh, you know, Muddy Waters was uh, our first star. The first record was named after their address on the west side of Chicago, Karlov Avenue, Fort Chess 1425, Gene Ammons, a saxophone guy, my foolish heart. I was at the session and it was at a famous Bill Putnam studio, Universal. We didn't have our own studios. He, my dad always dragged me. He was a horrible father as far as playing baseball and all that. His thing was teach him how to survive, teach him the family business. Your typical immigrant story. I remember sleeping on metal folding chairs when that song was recorded, the first chess record. I have a copy of it on a frame. My son has it on his wall. And, that, and Gene played at the club. That's how we knew Gene Ammons from playing at the McCombin. It was mostly jazz people who played there. And then it grew from ever, from there. And I was desperate uh, to be uh, around my father. I was the only son, I had two sisters, that time one sister. Um, and I began to, uh, he would take me. I mean, that was his way. Uh, he knew he wasn't, he would take me fishing occasionally. He'd come back even with the tavern. He'd come home at 5.30 and wake me to go fishing on the rocks. And I remember we would go in, in Lake Michigan and then go home and sleep a few hours and he'd do record business stuff. And um, that's how our relationship was. So it's even in Billboard uh, when they wrote this famous, great, the best chess book was called Spinning Blues into Gold by Nadine Cojoto, still online. She really got it. She was a historical writer. She had done Strom Thurmond's book before. You know, he's a history. So she got deep into the rabbis from the village in Poland. I mean, really deep. And I helped her because I wanted, I wanted to get the history documented. Like my real name, I never knew my real last name was CZYZ, Chez, the Polish. And my grandfather, he left that. She found the manifest of the ship where it showed them coming to America. So it's all in that book. But uh, that's how it all began. So I went on the road, it was in Billboard through the South. I drove the car, he taught me how to drive a car when I was like 11. My grandfather had a weird, like in a blue collar immigrant place in Michigan on the beach a little row of houses. So on those roads, they taught me how to drive on pillows. And my dad took me on the road. That's how I started out going through the South when I was 13, which was the biggest year, the year of my bar mitzvah and the year of our first crossover. That was Chuck Berry's Maybelline, Bo Diddley, Bo Diddley, 1955. 
And we had the first biggest interracial party in Chicago. I have the bar mitzvah book here where not only was Sam Phillips on records, the Erdogan, Hamid Erdogan from Atlantic, they were there because the, the early record guys were like the band of seven. They were all guys fighting the majors. Who do you pay off? How much do you give them? It was a con, it was, payola was a major part of the birth of independent record. It couldn't have happened without it. And, and the whole thing exploded, rock and roll exploded. You know, we were part of it with Chuck Berry, which was amazing because there was so much racism. And he got arrested and sent to prison for taking a white, well, she was actually, I think a Latino, young underage uh, prostitute across the state line, but it was a pure racist. We couldn't help it. You know, there was no way in, uh, we could win that. So he went to prison, that was our biggest artist. So we went through that whole, I mean, I've had reverse racism on me my whole life, people say, why don't you just talk about it? I said, you know, now I would be the Jewish guy who stole money from blacks, you know, with royalties. I don't want to be that, or I don't want to disrespect what my father did. But, you know, my father had no idea of racism. He didn't know what black people were. He, he actually, he and I, I, I love, I love black culture. When I, I worked at Sugar Hill, because I wanted to be around it again. And I loved every second of it. The bicker, I just love it. You know, I just was raised in it. And it's something that's part of me. And um, I, be, you know, I became friends with Chuck D of Public Enemy, KRS-One. Uh, I needed that around me. And even now, I, working with Bernard, it's, it's great for me. Um, but uh, it, it's an interesting thing. We were called, you know, uh, I, I, can you say the N-word on yeah, TV? I, and nigger word. lovers over and over. My dad was beat. I mean, it was terrible because we were in the ghetto. We were on the edge. We were dealing with Black people. Most white people didn't. And then we were selling, we were selling uh, a big part of our business was selling records for the jukeboxes to the mafia who control it in Chicago. They'd pay cash. So they were total racist, but you know, they didn't give a shit. They just wanted to make money. You know, it was all about money. Um, but there was a lot of reverse racism. And then when Chess Records would sell, my most depressing area was I was raised to run and take over Chess Records. And then I got a phone call from uh, my father had a phone in his car, one of the first mobile phones, because um, he was running from the, he, we had at that time bought a radio station and named it WVON, Voice of the Negro, the first modern black radio station, the first black news director, black per public affairs director, all black disc jockeys, a giant step upward in that kind of thing, but still owned by white people, you know? Um, and my dad had loved the radio and he became, he, you know, and maybe in some ways it was his way of payback, but he became at first like a philanthropist because it was good for the radio. Because, you know, we had this Bernadine C. Washington. She worked with the mayor, a very high class black woman who uh, really educated him about this whole other kind of black culture in Chicago, which was a very uh, people who owned Jet, you know, and Ebony magazine. It was a whole like a black high society in Chicago. But uh he, he became, he started to do philanthropy. We would give out, I remember standing on the churches, thousand bags on Christmas and Thanksgiving of food. They'd come up in Cadillacs to pick up the food uh, that we were giving away. And uh, it was an amazing thing. It became number one in Chicago, black 1000 watt radio station. And, and it became so big and he really, uh, he loved it. He loved the philanthropy. It was like his payback. Like, I feel the same way. I owe so much to uh, the Black people. I mean, my whole life was good because of that. 
And my father felt that too deep, and my uncle too, deep in their hearts. My dad became man of the year in Chicago Urban League. You know, when he died, they, on that radio station, the night after they did it, an hour's call-in show where people called in, Muddy Waters, the governor, everyone, Jesse Jackson. And I was shocked. I knew his Reverend Clay Evans. I have a photo on the wall of my dad, Martin Luther King, whom I met in Atlanta with Reverend Clay Evans. Clay Evans said, my father, yeah, Leonard, when we were doing the marches, I went to Leonard and he, and he immediately gave me a check for $1,000. I flew, cashed it and flew down to Martin. We, we bought water, we bought supplies for the march. I never even knew that it's about my father, you know? So amazing. I'm so proud of that part of it, you know? Amazing. Um, but, uh, but the music is amazing. Nothing in Chicago, Carl Sandburg before my father, besides Carl Sandburg, nothing has create with that much creativity hundreds and hundreds of every genre jazz black black gospel black comedy moms maybe the first of that black we had reverend seal franklin franklin aretha's aretha's father i, I love the lord he heard my cry A million seventy-eights. That was the first services, not became radio and then TV. Before that, you got it on a seventy-eight, the sermon, and you played it through the South, advertised on a fifty thousand watt WLAC radio station, covered like thirteen states, and they'd mail in money, money orders to get these sermons. We had it all. It wasn't just the blues. Besides being the foundation of rock and roll, it became all these other genres. When you're in the music business, it's not like you discover music and you're a music lover. It's always around me. My younger sister, Elaine, would pick the B side sometimes. He'd bring home acetates and play it, you know. We were just around hits. It was about making money. Hits. It, it, it was a crazy time, you know. That was a big thing. When those hits were amazing and a thrilling thing, but... The amount of creativity that came out of that building is amazing. So after uh, Chess Records, I was lucky. Well, I'll tell you my story. I had that's how it began. Chess Records. Wait, wait, wait. Hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before we move on past that, can, can we just go back a little bit? Do you yeah, mind? Whatever you want. You're the boss. Right. No, great, great. This is just absolutely priceless. I can um, run it the mouth. I haven't done this in uh, a couple listen, of years. Listen, listen. It's 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 wonderful, Marshall. Every every little word. It's like you're. Uh, it's like I'm watching somebody weave a tapestry right in front of me. Well, that's what I'm trying to do. A yeah. rock contour. You are doing it. So. When people talk about you, they say that Marshall Chess has guided the course of musical history for more than 50 years. There are not a lot of people who can stand up to that kind of accolade, but you can. We talked a little bit about uh, your Polish heritage. I also have Polish heritage. And is there something about that immigrant work ethic in the Polish population that gravitated to Chicago, the black population, as you said, came up from the South to get jobs. Was there almost a common grittiness, you think? Oh, between there's, the there's, immigrants? Definitely, uh, there's definitely a link, I mean, in a subconscious level to poor people making a change in their lives to make it better. That's a deep, deep thing for their families, for themselves. That that's way deep. I mean, it's Freud could have analyzed that one. I mean, I'm sure there's a link of that. But in my father's village, uh, there wasn't music. He the, one guy had a wine that Victrola, 
And he would say, when the guy would wind it up, the half the town would come by his window to hear what music sounded like, you know? Um, you know, and oh my, oh, here's another. So, but then my uncle, they come to America. Remember the work ethic. My grandfather came seven years to Chicago to get the money to send for the rest. My grandmother and the sister and the brothers, one had died, one of the other kids in Poland. And then he had a scrap metal yard. My uncle said, used to, I don't know, we don't know if it's true. My uncle said, we used to collect bottles, empty bottles and bring them to Al Capone's bootleg. And they watched, fill them with booze. And one time I, Al, Al, he said, Al gave me $100 and he hooked me up with a whorehouse because he liked me, you know? I said, my uncle would say, I don't know if it's true. We checked the dates. I think Al was in prison at that time, but it was maybe it was someone, you know? But my, my uncle would say, my grandfather would be, beat them with the belt. They'd be home because there was a black church. They had never heard music, man. There was a black church within... 50 yards of the scrapyard in the black ghetto. And they would hear a tambourine, piano and drum and singing and be fascinated and stand there fascinated. That was their first exposure to black music. And then they would go home and he would, he was a, he was a child beater type, you know, strict. He would he'd be mad at them. He would be up, beat them because he, they came late. Where were you, you know? But uh, yeah, I think that you're 100% right. I, you know, I mean, there were so many of the early record guys who were from immigrant backgrounds. You know, the only ones that I that were like from a high class were the Erdogans and Jerry Wexler from Atlantic. He was educated. The Erdogans' father was, I think, a diplomat in Washington from Atlantic Records. They had a different perspective. But all the other guys were like, you know, usually Jewish or you know, the Jaime Weiss from Old Town Records. I could remember them all. George Goldner. There were a lot of Jews, a lot of immigrant types. They were making records, and uh, that's how they had, that's how the reputation of screwing with the royalties became. Because uh, they, they, you know, they didn't know it. There were no contracts. There were no entertainment lawyers. A lot of people got screwed, and uh, you know, I, people always accuse the chesses of that. I, I, in my own experience of working there and having to deal with those kind of things, I never saw it. I only saw one thing once. My dad would review the royalty statements. And I once saw him, the Dells or some doo-wop group had a big hit, had a big, and he said, take 5,000 and split it between Muddy and Wolf. Take it off the Dells. <laughs> that wow. I saw him do. Wow. I heard a wonderful story about the very first time when you were a little boy and Muddy Waters showed up at your house. Yeah, yeah, Muddy House, totally, yeah. You want to hear the story? I do. Okay, so we lived at that time, uh, we, had, we had moved. Muddy was already a star you know, in the black neighborhood, a sex symbol, man, not not like an old folk singer. This guy was a sex singer to put a Coke bottle. Mick Jagger stole that Coke got bottled in his underwear. So it looked like his dick was giant, you know, when he, <laughs> when he would shake. Come on. That was the first time I met Muddy. So I'm, we're, we're on South Yates Avenue, 8136. I remember it. I'm in the front yard. Cadillac pulls up. This guy comes out. Artists didn't come to the house often, you know, they didn't. Chuck did, but not, this was before. A guy comes out of the car and I can remember bright green, fluorescent green suit. I look hair like eight inches high. I look down, his shoes had the skin of a cow or horse with hair, like pinto pony or cow skin, dressed like, you know, you know, unbelievable, like a peacock, you know? And are you young chess? Yeah, I'm muddy. Is your pop around? And I went and got my dad, you know? And uh, that was my first time. 
But then I got to love money. He used to call me, as, you know, I hate to say this because people say, you're making it up, but he called me his white grandson and his wife, Geneva. When I was, I used to work every summer. She was, when I was 14, 15, I was always in the stock room. I always worked in the record business. I loved it. She sent me fried chicken in the old time aluminum foil, tin foil, we'd call it, big thick foil. She'd send me fried chicken. He'd bring it. Wow. Geneva sent it that he that was she, she was really his love. I remember his address, 4339 South Indiana. That was Muddy's house in the basement. And then Willie Dixon, another you know important element who uh, put together our bands, you know, big upright bass player. Um, I knew I saw first time I met Willie was before we, we moved to the famous 2120 building on 4750 South Cottage, a corner, a building uh, in the heart of the ghetto with a, a mafia printing plant next door, Victory Stationery. They printed the numbers racket paper for Detroit and Chicago. My father became good friends with, with those people. And uh, they were they were next door. They actually recorded in there. We get out of the office. They had a window between two offices. And I remember Willie Dixon with a big white bass, you know, and then it's standing in there. We only had limited mics and it was recording on acetate, not even on tape. And the guy would have to walk up to the mic. That was like first series of watching recording. They would do recording there. So my dad and Willie had some weird deal because Willie was always the leader of the sessions. We were a union recording. We would pay this leader got double. And Mr. Samuels, I was in charge of that when I was very young. I'd have to go at night when we'd have a session, Mr. Samuels would come and I would give pay, but before they'd have to sign. That's how we got all the publishing. Before they got the check, they had to sign releases and everything. So they signed the song, right? Whatever, or releases. And I, Mr. Samuels would come. We were a union, Willie got double, but my father made him, my father was all, yeah, I'll give you double on everything, but half of that double, you have to give back to me. So I, he'd say, he'd give Willie the check and he'd send Marshall to the fucking bank with Willie to get the cash to get half and bring it oh, back, man. half of the extra to give it back to my father. And they loved it. Both of them were quite happy to have that deal, I can tell you. But I'll never forget, I always tell this story. It's another colorful story. Willie had an old Chevy station wagon. Willie was maybe 300 pounds, obese, big, six foot four, three, you know. And I'm a little short guy. Well, I would get in the car to go to the bank. Willie would go in the driver's side. When he'd sit down, the car would tilt because he had, it was an old used car with bad shocks and springs. And he weighed so much, the whole car would tilt over. Oh and then Willie, Willie would, uh, Willie would take, take me to uh, the bank with him. He'd cash the check and give me the, give me the check. And I used to also take the cash from selling records for cash to distributors. Uh, they used to send me to the bank on Cottage Grove. On Mondays, you'd see if there was blood by the liquor store. It was always stabbings in that neighborhood. And I would go to uh, the bank, and then I would go. It was before coffee machines in offices. They would send me to Deutsches, which was a coffee shop for all white and black people in that right by the bank. But the cups were shit, and the bags were cheap paper. By the time I walked back, the bags would disintegrate from leaking coffee. Those are memories of mine. My baby don't stand no cheating, my baby. Oh yeah, she don't stand no cheating, my baby. Oh yeah, she don't stand no 
cheating She don't stand none of that midnight creeping My baby, true little baby, my baby so Marshall, you mentioned Chuck Berry before and, yes. and Maybelline. Can yes. you that was the first crossover hit. Can you talk about what it was like before that, where there was black radio and there was white radio and the two yeah, did, there did was, not there meet was, until no, there Chuck was, Berry? We, we we knew nothing of white radio before that. White radio did not play black artists in general. There may have been a few. Maybe they played Nat King Cole doing a ballad. So yes, there was black radio, but most black radio at the very beginning were small stations where the disc jockey actually bought the time from the owner of the station, then sold the spots. Then that's how it worked. And that's how payola began. You would pay the disc jockey to play the record. So our, I mean, that, that was, we had a whole network of these kind of black radio stations. Yes, then one by one. I mean, there was the, the biggest was WLAC in, in um, Nashville, I think it was. Memphis or Nashville, oh, oh, confuse me. Hoss Allen, John Richburg, those were the disc jockeys. Those were, that was the big 50,000 watt station, WLAC. That, you know, you got your record, you, you know, that of course we took care of them and they, everyone was happy. When they had the payola scandals, Chess was one of the few labels that didn't get indicted because they got, it was legal payola. They, they only made it illegal because they were paying cash and not putting it on the books. We had a smart enough accountant. We gave 1099s. Hmm. We paid our disc jockeys salaries with checks and that we, so we eliminated getting involved in those payola areas once that got discovered. We had, you know, yes, I'm sure plenty were probably given cash without the check, but in general, our payola was done legally. Through it, we paid tax. They got 1099. Whether they paid income tax or not, we didn't know. That was up to them. So that, that's what that happened. But yes, it was very difficult. So, okay, I, that. So here's a good good example. So Chuck Berry comes to Chicago. He came to get on a record label. He wanted to be a recording star. He had a tape he made in St. Louis with Johnny Johnson. He worked in the Johnny Johnson Trio, I think it was called. Johnny Johnson was a piano player in St. Louis. And he came to Chicago with his wife. And of course, they went to see, on a weekend, they went to see Muddy Waters. That was his hero. Because Chuck wanted to be a blues singer. Blues singer. That's what is that he wanted to be at that time. And he went up to Muddy. He said, look, I got a tape. What do I do? He said, go see Leonard Chess. And sure enough, Monday morning, Chuck came with his tape. And my uncle and my father were there. And he went in and he said, Muddy Waters told me to come see you. Well, Muddy told you, come on in. What do you got? Put on his tape. And it was two songs, the story is. The first was a strict 12 bar, 12 bar blues. It's, you could hear it. It's called Wee Wee Hours. It was a real blues, just like Muddy would have sung. And the other was called Ida Red. And it was basically Maybelline, the rhythm of Maybelline with different lyrics. My father knew by then that the black culture of the time, they wanted new stuff. They were the leaders of fashion. It was a new look, and a wide tie, a thin tie, pointed shoes, round shoes. The, sh the guys who had money were always dressed the sharpest. And it was the same with music. Uh, uh, we, we were the first to build an echo chamber in the basement with clay pipes and a microphone. The sound of the electric guitar, uh, uh, all that was new, a new sound. We were the first to use an amplified harmonica, Little Walter Juke. After Little Walter played Juke, every blues band had a harmonica player, not before. So anyway, Chuck came 
And uh, my father said, that's great. That's different. I like that a lot. Change something. And there happened to be a Mabel of the, this is the story. I wasn't there, but there was a box of cosmetics. A fan, it's still a company called Maybelline Cosmetics there. One of the girls at the office probably had it. And he looked at that and he said, what are we called Maybelline? They came up with the name Maybelline. And Chuck went back. And a week later came back. And with Johnny Johnson then to play piano, and uh, with the chess band, then Willie, I guess, was on at those people, the chess rhythm section, and uh, played Maybelline, and boom. And so my dad, he loved it. He thought it was different. My dad goes on the road, and everything was by car. This was no, we had no money for planes. And the number one white crossover, sort of crossover, who was Alan Freed in New York, number one disc jockey. We, my dad knew Alan, you know, and he was also a payola guy, you know, and uh, my dad made, uh, went to, played that for Alan Freed and made Alan part writer on Maybelline. That was the payola, which he doesn't have to this day. Chuck got it back. Chuck was aware of it. Chuck was a totally, Chuck had been to prison for robbing a gas station. Chuck was a streetwise sharp guy. He understood about payola, about what you had to do to make it. He had no problem with that. Him and my father were like, wow, that was like a friendship, but they were really tight. And uh, Alan, I guess Alan played, so my dad left driving back to Chicago. Alan played that fucking record all night, one, one time after the other. My dad got to Cleveland. It was another great disc jockey, Porky Chedwick. My dad got to Cleveland because there was no phones. He calls my uncle, what's up? He said, what's up? Place is going crazy. That Chuck Berry record, they're going, the phone doesn't stop ringing. They had a hit, a crossover hit. So boom, they did what they could, different pressing plants. We had a, that time we didn't own a pressing plant. That's when we decided we better own one because you had to deal with other pressing plants. They might not have had room for you. You needed records. That was the hard, get it done. We had a hit, you had to come quick. You know, they, they, were, they had a hit, they had a hit. So I'm with my dad, not, I'm 13 years old. I'm always with my dad this summer. I'm on the outer drive in Chicago. He's listening to WIND, the most white, Trump kind of radio station, Howard Miller is his name, 55 on the dial, AM, all of a sudden, Maybelline, don't be true. My dad looks at me, slaps me on the leg and says, motherfucker, he calls me, motherfucker, we have made it. Maybelline, why can't you be true? What a great story. And you ended up going on the road with Chuck. I went on the road after he came out of prison. My dad, I was afraid. He wanted, I guess my dad, well, my dad trusted me, you know, as being whatever he did. He must have trusted me, obviously. You know, I, my dad never even told me he loved me, man. The best thing he ever told me was, you're going to make it. I'm proud of you. I think you're going to make it in life. I mean, he just, but he, he, those kind of things made me know, you know, he trusted me to do that. I was young. I mean, I don't remember my exact age. I wasn't married. I must have been in my early 20s, you know, out of college, right out of college. Yeah, he sent me on the road, check it out of prison immediately. 
we, while Chuck was in prison, we made we wanted to pretend Chuck wasn't in prison, so we put out Chuck Berry on stage. We took all his recordings and added fake applause and made it seem like it was a new live recording. <laughs> wow! And put that out. We had to keep him alive, you know, to the public. He came out, and so Chuck comes right from prison, wearing raggedy clothes. My dad gave me a hundred dollar bill, and he says, "Take Chuck shopping." for clothes. I took him down to Chicago Avenue. It was a place by the Chicago theater where black people, you know, the one, you know, the blues guys, everyone went. You could buy, stay, you know, flashy kind of clothes. And for a hundred bucks, you could get a few outfits back then. So I took Chuck and he, uh, I took Chuck shopping. And then they booked a road trip. And he, my dad said, I want you to go with Chuck. You know, he just come out of prison. Any trouble you call me, you know, you have to go with Chuck. There's nothing for you to do, but if there's any kind of trouble, you're the you're the white guy there, you know? I said, Amazing. okay, I go off with Chuck and we go by plane. And the first, well, I think we, we went by plane. The first gig, I wish we had recorded it, was on Flint, Michigan, who was the Motown rhythm section. I remember the girl playing bass. Wow, Chuck Berry with the Motown rhythm section. Wasn't recorded that, but he was, he, he Chuck Berry, one of his biggest faults in my opinion, knowing him, was he never wanted, he didn't, he didn't understand like what the Rolling Stones did. He didn't understand that the magic of having the band locked as one behind them, like they were at Chess Records. When my dad produced them, my uncle, that was what, we, you know, that was how we got the magic. The band had to be locked. We were recording before multi-track. There were no mistakes. It had to be locked to get that magic when people played as one. Chuck never, Chuck would do pickup bands. He didn't want to have his own, he didn't want the trouble of managing his own band with salaries and trouble. So in most cases, he used pickup bands and he would rehearse for a half hour with them. He'd expect them to know his songs from the record. And, to and a lot of mistakes were made. And a lot of the countries didn't have the magic because the band and the Chuck were disc, they weren't connected at times. And, but the audience doesn't seem to know. That's what I learned watching this somehow, especially with the Rolling Stones. I saw them make mistakes and everyone, no one even hears that they applaud, they get crazy, aside from that. So Chuck and I went on the road and uh, we, we went on about six, seven cities. I remember doing the Cow Palace in San Francisco. Um, that's when I caught him. Ah, let's go, let's eat. I'm not hungry, baby. He was real cheap, Chuck. I'm not hungry, baby. We, we would pick up Chinese food. He loved Chinese food, eat in the room. I'm not hungry, baby. We'll get something later. And then I go, I had something I had to tell him. I knock on his door and he's got a hot plate. He traveled with a hot plate in his suitcase on his, we're cooking some beans in a can. You know, I said, oh man, I'm thinking, you know, wow, this guy is a trip, man. Uh, he said he was a real eccentric. I loved him, you know. I mean, he was a, he was very important to my family and my life changed. In, look, my life changed in 55. I got a new bike, you know, everything. Everything wow, changed. Amazing. That was the first real money that came into our family. And, you know? and I know the label was founded, Chess, in 50. And about yeah. a year later, your dad made a deal with Sam Phillips. Yes. Sam Phillips was a record producer. Not It was no Sun Records then. 
that's how we got Howling Wolf. But the first, the first record we got from Sam Phillips was Rocket 88, Jackie Brenston, which was considered the first rock and roll record. You women have heard of Jalopy, you've heard the noise they make, but let me introduce my new Rocket 88. Yes, it's straight, just one way. Everybody likes my Rocket 88. Baby, we'll ride in style, moving all along. Jackie Brenson was a saxophone player with Ike Turner's band, but he was a vocalist as well. Yeah, he made a deal with Sam Phillips. They became very close. Like I say, Sam was at my bar mitzvah and uh, Sam was our first white, pre you know, Sam knew my dad. They want, everyone wanted to be on chess because we got it played. And if you got it played, you could play live. These weren't million sellers. Blues records sold 45, a giant blues record, 30, 40,000. The royalty was two cents for publishing. That's 800 bucks on 40,000. This isn't million misconstrued after rock and roll hit with million sellers that people were making millions. There wasn't millions. And my father's attitude, which is in every recording contract, modern, and which is probably a lot of the problems for all the royalty kind of discussion. He felt that the payola was the cost of the artist. <laughs> he would upfront it, just like a modern recording contract. They pay, artists pay for video costs, they pay for promotion, all that. It comes off their royalties. That's why most modern artists, unless they come giant and contour, we don't make money from records anymore, really. Maybe now from streaming, it's different. I don't know. But uh, yeah, so that was, it was an interesting time. Artists just love, they just love to be on chess. We got their records played. Money Waters didn't make millions of dollars from royalties. He was able to make $500 on a Saturday night, which was like 5,000 back then, because his record was on the radio all week. Because my father paid off Al Benson, you know, the blast it. Maybe. Yeah, that's why. So it was a symbiotic relationship happening there between all these white label owners, radio people. They were all made. They were all living better due to each other. And I guess today the only living legend in blues who's really out there now is Buddy Guy. It's funny you mentioned because Buddy Guy came to chess, I think, in 67 or something later in the 60s. He was later. But uh, I didn't really know Buddy well at all. I met him in the studio. He was a sideman later on. Um, and there's a lot of publicity. This I recently called me from American Master Series. They're doing Buddy Guy now. Would I be on? And I say, yeah, I mean, I'll be glad, but I know nothing. Buddy Guy is my weakest memory. I have one great memory of Buddy Guy, which is, so 1967, 42. I don't know, I was young. I think I was in high school or, or, or college when I met him. And Buddy was still going down back to Louisiana. And I knew all about mojos. And my, we were very, super, my dad picked up that superstition thing from the black culture completely. I myself, you know, had a lot of that, you know, what's omens and all that weirdness he picked up from it. So I asked Buddy to get me a mojo so I could get girls. And he sure enough did. He brought me this little pink bag. I remember it had like pig bristles sticking out of it and it smelled of the cheapest $1 perfume. And I had to pin it to my white, remember you wore white t-shirts under your shirt. I'd pin it to my white t-shirt. That was supposed to get me. That was my, that's my best funny guy story. Oh, but there's amazing. a lot of stories. My dad didn't like his playing, you know, and this and that. It's not true. My dad was superstitious. He didn't want to change the chemistry of the bands that gave him all the hits. Right. That was really where he was coming from. Not because of his artistry, you know. He just felt it as some magic 
He was looking at that magic kind of stuff, like the Stones. That was my first experience when I went with the Rolling Stones when I was working in their rehearsings. I saw that they did what the chess records said. They wouldn't see each other for five months. And then when the, I'd rent a studio for like three weeks. And then the first day they would just fuck around and fuck around and talk, how are you? And sometime during a week or two, they'd lock. You know, and all of, they had that magic, like those early chess bands, they had that magic. And then they would knock out tracks and then maybe even write, write the lyrics, go away, write the lyrics, come back weeks later. But the tracks would have that lock magic, you know? Okay, so I, I wanna talk about the Stones, but before yes. we get there, you are one of very few people who can talk about not only Muddy, but Howlin' Wolf. My oldest, uh, most impressive remembrance of Howling Wolf was how big he fucking was. First time I met him, I his hands were like, I shook his hand and it was like going in a catcher's mitt, my little hand. And I looked down and he, his feet were so wide that he had taken a razor blade and cut the outside of his shoes. So his, the sides of his feet and socks, his shoes were too narrow. That's how big he was, you know? And he was another guy that, uh, Wolf was just a, an interesting character. I had so many conversations with him about where he lived in, in Arkansas and how he was into hunting. And one time I thought, you know, he was into hunting and fishing. Um, and uh, he would tell me about, uh, one time he told me that the best, oh, he would give me, they would all, oh, they would always ask me, Muddy and Wolf, did I get any yet? They were real interested if I'd had sex. Right. And I hadn't, you know, right. <laughs> they were because <laughs> the, those guys were getting sex in the South at 14, you know, they, they, you get me it, you get me it. So <laughs> Wolf once told me, he said, best women are wino women. He said, you can take them in the alley and have some fun. <laughs> and years later, I never knew Wolf, not, I, all my time around Wolf, I, I went once to the most in a basement blues club. I don't remember, I think my uncle Phil took me and it was Wolf and he was so, he was on stage howling, the shirt open and howling at the moon and you know, sweating. Rah, rah, rah. And he got up and Hubert, his famous guitar player, he was like a stepson. Hubert made a mistake and he punched Hubert in the arm. He was drunk, he must've been drunk. I didn't know it then. So years later, when I was filming this uh, Scorsese blues series thing, we filmed Coco Taylor, a famous blues uh, sure. blues singer uh, that was on chess, who had this hit, Wayne Dang Doodle, Willie Dixon produced. And and uh, Coco and I were talking about Wolf, because did you know Wolf was a big alcohol? I never knew he was an alcoholic, that before he went on stage, he would drink. The only time he drank was before he performed, not at home, she told me. He, but before he had four, he would guzzle out of the bottle. That's how he did that howling and all that. Um, but so, you know, I had a lot. My biggest problem with Wolf was I did this album. I wanted my own thing. So I had my first label way earlier called Marmar, one single, Marmar. That was my little sister called me, Marshall, Marmar. I put out one record. 
a master I bought from England for 300 bucks was Jimmy Nichols. He was one of the drummers of the Beatles for a short time. And it was a flop. It was, you know, I put it out anyway. I wanted my own label. I wanted to be like my dad, you know, like kids do. So uh, later on in life, I, I decided I wanted a label. I came up with Cadet Concept, uh, uh, my label and uh, my concepts. And I came up, the first album I did was this, uh, then, then I discovered, uh, which a guy would have been so world famous today had he lived, a, a black arranger named Charles Stepney, who was just, if, if I, uh, it was probably, he was just a genius. I mean, he was just a genius. We, at that time, we used to have, uh, when you, you copyrighted a song in Washington, you had to send a cassette and a lead sheet, a written sheet with notes. Now you just send in a recording. But back then you had to. So I had, I was in charge at that time of getting the lead sheets of all the new songs. So I heard about this guy, Charles Stepney, who could read and write music. And I saw him once with this giant portfolio. I said, what's this? This is a symphony I've written. I said, symphony? He said, yeah, I'm graduating from college in Chicago, music degree. I mean, I said, uh, well, I have this idea of, of a co, of a black and white mixed group um, with, with strings and things. Um, I need a, I need a partner to help me. You know, would you, would you be interested in getting involved? Oh man, of course, you know, I'm paying him $15 for a lead sheet. Of course he was, you know? So we became really good friends and we, we, we created this group called Rotary Connection. Marshall, now in his mid twenties, was embracing the new psychedelic movement sweeping the States. And he believed that Charles Stepney, a classically trained arranger at the label, had the potential to radically expand the musical language of chess in this strange new era. Charles Stepney to me was my musical idol. Oh boy, did he blow our minds. His whole being was music. He wasn't just a musician. He was music. One of Marshall's plans with Charles Stepney was to introduce Muddy Waters to the hippie masses with the album Electric Mud. Minnie Ripperton, who was the receptionist at Chess, also a background singer in called The Gems, um, and uh, mixed it with uh, some guys that were uh, like a white band from a Polish neighborhood. One of the Chess guys managed mix it with those guys, and we put together this interracial band. I played in it. I played a, 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 a Russian instrument called the theremin. That, that woo, like in Beach Boys, Good Vibrations. And we made this album. And man, I did, I threw party, I did everything. And um, it became a giant hit in three cities. Chess couldn't promote white. You know, we didn't know how albums. I, I got it in Chicago, Detroit, and Cleveland. It sold like 150,000. That was big. And then Rotary, so I had Rotary Connection. I was the big shot at chess. Oh, your album that sold 150,000 in six weeks, man. That was big time. We pressed it, we made it, you know. So uh, then I had this idea for Muddy, Electric Mud. Mud, Muddy was doing badly then. The white market hadn't exploded. We, we knew whites were buying albums. See, this is before. When we got our first inkling was Muddy played the Newport Jazz Festival. We recorded it live and we put out an album, Muddy Live at Newport. Muddy Waters. Muddy, come on. Thank you. Uh, this is the one we made a, a few years ago. You're called Hoochie Coochie Man. <laughs> Gypsy woman told my mother before 
I was born You got a boy child coming Gonna be a son of a gun He gonna make pretty women's Jump and shout Then the world wanna know What this all about But you know I'm here All of a sudden, we're getting all these orders from Boston. I remember my memory. White kids, college kids who were at the festival were buying Muddy Waters Blues, you know, that album. That's when we saw it was an album market with black people didn't even have a record player, man. It was no black record, black album market. It was the white. So that's when my whole life changed. I was doing, I my job was the blues compilations. All those, the blues volume one, Wizards from the South, every one, one after the other, with all of our hit singles. And I would, my job was sequencing them and packaging them, and we put it out strictly for the white market. And uh, so then I wanted to do Electric Mud. I knew by then I, as my father did with radio, I copied him and I became friends with alternative radio all over America. Just the beginning of FM alternative radio. You could I drove cross country visiting these guys and you could go in, give them your album. They put it right on, no playlist and smoke a joint on the air with you while they played it and talk. So I worked my way coast to coast from New York all the way to San Francisco to the Johnny and Mitchell show and electric mud. So I did electric mud. I convinced money. I said, look, I, I'm looking at you like you're Marlon Brando. This is not, I'm not trying to make you anything other than an actor in a concept. He got it. He did get it, you know, and maybe you can make some money because there's this white market, this psychedelic white drug market. I'm one of them. I am one of them, man. I'm taking acid. I'm smoking. You know, I'm doing everything of that era. I know this exists. And I put together the best avant-garde blues band of young guys in Chicago. Um, Phil Upchurch, Paul Maury, the guy who played Pete Cozy on guitar, who played with Miles after Miles Davis discovered him from Electric Mud, you know, all these great guys, young guys. And uh, we did Electric Mud, which exploded. It became Muddy's, in, in, in three months, it was the biggest album Muddy ever had, you know, and Muddy got royalties and he loved it. Here's the thing that the press always screws up. He loved it so much that he wanted to make a second album. And we did one called After the Rain. And Muddy allowed Victor Skrebnowski, the famous Chicago photographer, world famous photographer, was dead now. The cover was Muddy covered in mud with a frog on his shoulder. You know, if he did, if he thought it was shit, he would have, he didn't submit to that. He saw, yeah, I got some money, you know, and this is good and it's opening up. He was smart money, he was a band leader. He was a businessman as well as a great, a great, a great American artist. So that 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 was my you know that that all happened. So then I did Howling Wolf. I had to do Howling Wolf. Same idea. 
So we came up with this idea, Holly, and it was a, it was a mistake. It was Howling Wolf had been ill. He couldn't even stand up. He was sitting in a chair to play. He didn't like the idea, but he that the concept of making money, they all like, you know. And I said, money is da da da. So long. I'll do it for you, Marshall. And he hated it. And he publicized it. He called it dog shit in public on interviews, and it never sold. I don't, it was a flop, even though I play it. You know, it's still a good album. It never sold. Uh, you know, it was a lesson. Uh, but then money. Years later, when the white, I forget, the, I know the writer's name, it'll come to me, about Rolling Stone magazine at that time was the Bible of alternative radio. It was a newspaper format then out of San Francisco. You know, it wasn't a slick magazine. I knew the winners, I promoted them right away. I, Jan, Jan had asked me numerous times, can you buy ads in advance so I could pay my salaries? I did it, you know, we were all in it together. We were the band of 10, whatever, you know. All these young people, in a whole new thing. So this, yeah, Guy Marcus was his last name. He wrote an article. The headline was the worst blues album ever made, Electric Mud. That was like, you took a dagger. I never tried to make a blues album to begin with. Obviously, I put together these compilations, you know. My, I never wanted to make, I never looked at it as a blues album. I looked at it as an album for guys taking acid, you know, and, you know, tripping, like Rotary Connection. That was what that was about, that culture at the time. When money sort of turned on, on me, um, he began to realize he better say it was shit, Electric Mud, to go along with all these white writers. It was very, I didn't like it. We fell out over that, you know. I didn't like that. He did right, that. But, but, but history views that record in a very different way. And it, Are you kidding? My cousin, Sam Chess, the greatest musician of the chess film. He's a trombonist from, uh, graduated from Juilliard. A jazz played, toured with, uh, uh, what's the big black band tour? Come on, help me out my mind. Oh, and you know, he's toured with a big band of- Count uh, Basie? Winston. Winston. Well, Winton no. Marcel. He's a trombone player. Yeah. He told me when people find out he's from Chess and Muddy Waters, the only album they mention is Electric Mud. Yeah. When they hear it, these are all people from Juilliard, you know, yeah. music freaks. So, so, yeah, you're right. It changed. Time changed it. Thanks for listening. Part two of Great Minds featuring record legend Marshall Chess will be available Tuesday, April 13th on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Subscribe now to make sure you don't miss it. For more content from Advertising Week, the global leader in marketing, advertising, and technology thought leadership and education, visit www.advertisingweek.com. 